have built this. Hey friends, you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. Today's adventure is Cold Stones, no doubt a reference to the surroundings Carmela found herself in on her tourist mode visit to Paris. But also perhaps, to my mind, a slightly more interesting and subtle inquiry. Who's got the colder stones? Phil or his wife, Patty? This episode originally aired on May 21st, 2006. It was written by Diane Frolov, Andrew Schneider, and David Chase. It was directed by Tim Van Patten. HBO synopsis. A frenzy of borrowing money hits the crew. Carmelo waxes philosophical on a trip to Paris with Rosalie. Meadow relocates. Vito tracks down and begs to be let back in, something the crew is dubious about. Later, Phil Leotardo remedies the situation to Tony's annoyance. Meanwhile, Tony vents to Melfi about AJ, but later puts his foot down with him. Speaking of AJ, we open on Carmela having words with AJ. Note, she's in Carmela Blue, a color top we've seen her in before, more than once. Penultimate episodes are always ripe with references to the past. This one is no different. In fact, even more so, right from the first frame. Tony walks in on it, immediately thinking of turning around or hiding under a rock, at least for a second. Turns out she was at Blockbuster to rent Cinderella Man, and she walked in to find he wasn't there. In his defense, though, I mean, come on. It's bad enough that you're working at Blockbuster. But to have your mom come in to visit? Talk about rock bottom. Where do you even go from there? Tony wonders if it's still a classic, Cinderella Man, rubbing his eye. Wondering how he can get out of this, cranking through the permutations, or perhaps putting on a show for the moment. You can never have too much credit banked with the spouse. Cinderella Man was a Ron Howard picture that came out in 05 about boxer James Braddock, world heavyweight champ in the 1930s. The moniker Cinderella Man came after his fight against Max Baer to win the heavyweight title. He was a huge underdog in that fight, 10 to 1. A journeyman fighter like Rocky, he was handpicked by Bear's brain trust because it was thought to be an easy payday. Bit of Sopranos connectivity. Another of his nicknames, the Pride of New Jersey. He's got a park named after him right on the Hudson, near where Christopher's new waterfront place is from last episode. A place Cosette might have gone for walks. Maybe in another life, when she's a cat. Sorry, Vanilla Sky found its way to my screen again. I'll see you in another life, when we are both cats. She tells him their son, the liar, was fired three weeks ago. Three again. Also, made me wonder about how long you can keep a lie like that going. 
I'm now on the other side of that as a dad. When will it start? How long will it take before I find out? When does the razor sharpness we think we have when we're young like AJ start to dull? What will I do when, if, like Tony says at the end of this episode, I'm put to the test? T can't believe he got fired. From Blockbuster? How the fuck you do that? They got Reese's monkeys working as managers over there. Reese's are just a certain kind of monkey. Very close in nature to humans, actually. She says he was taking promotional items and selling them. Gotta say, enterprising. Tony gives a look, indicating as much, too. Little cons pulled off successfully, sharpening that innate toolkit. A great foundation for the contrast that is laid bare between him and Meadow this episode. Same roots, different branches. Also, movie promo stuff outside of billboards on Sunset or Times Square feels quaint now, doesn't it? Online, though, you can find movie merch by the boatloads. Old posters, pins, banners, you name it. Get this, blockbuster lapel pins sell on eBay for like 15 to 20 bucks a piece. I guess for anyone who wants to relive their past glory there. Or maybe to be a blockbuster employee for Halloween one year. Got me thinking about the best-selling movie merch of all time. The list isn't all that surprising and really can be reduced to one thing. Kids. Number one, no surprise, Star Wars. It also benefits from being around the longest. And it cuts through generations the same way Luke cut through dark troopers. Like butter. I'm even in the market for a Mando helmet. Maybe instead of a mask. Next, you've got movies like Cars, Frozen, Transformers, Toy Story. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Batman, and all that Marvel Universe stuff. Wow. Reciting all those aloud really brought me back full tilt to the past theme from the show that is brought front and center again this episode, this time by Carmela. It's all a big nothing. Carmela's talking about store policies, you know, rules, and how clear they are which is rich, picking which rules to follow versus which not to follow, like selective hearing. AJ argues he did it for the environment. Greta Thunberg over here. He brings up Wallace and Gromit, the British claymation series about a guy and his anthropomorphic dog. The promotional materials for that shit killed off who knows how many trees, he argues. He's not wrong. That movie raked $193 million on a $30 million budget. Second highest grossing stop-motion animated film. Films like that have the marketing muscle behind them to drive those numbers. The worst part of all this for Carm, AJ doesn't even give a shit that he got fired. He calls Blockbuster a bunch of religious fanatics. What's that all about? But it's an interesting statement, especially this episode, as the term aptly applies to Phil's wife, Patty as we'll see. He talks about how expensive a night out in New York is, how he alternates tabs with the guys, including Hernan. T brings up a wreck he was involved in. But AJ says there's going to be a big payday because one of the people involved was in Forbes magazine. No doubt, 
being on a Forbes list is a tort lawyer's dream. But he could also be talking about a byline for all we know. Carm storms off after the Forbes thing. God almighty, she says. Another subtle nod to what she's about to witness, externally as well as internally, in Paris. Also, she's worked up about a couple of bottles of champagne. But later, we'll hear her name drop a bag she's going to pick up in Paris, whose average cost retail is around 20K. Granted, like she once said to her mom and dad, she's earned it. But AJ, guy's getting a free pass to extend her reasoning then to this scenario here. AJ says you can't even talk to her. Quite hilariously. Great hand gesture. Probably his best of the series. This, just an episode after Tony says, your mother's the person you should talk to about this stuff. T says AJ should be kissing her feet. More religious imagery. Because if it wasn't for her, he would have busted his teeth out with one shot. The way he says, one shot. This, of course, is frustration that has been fomenting since Army of One, pretty much. And that reaches its boiling point later, as we'll see. T storms off, and AJ flips him off as he does. Note, enclosed by framing that suggests he's trapped. The sadness of his story, though, he has every opportunity to transcend. But unlike Hamilton, he's throwing away his shot. Personal aside, I pulled what AJ did to a teacher once in seventh grade and got caught and suspended for it. So every time I see that, I cringe. Later that night in bed, T's snoring while Carmela's contemplating everything and nothing at the same time. Jorge Luis Borges over here. Without digressing too far down that rabbit hole, Borges is a podcast series by itself. A line that stuck with me from that collection, everything and nothing, for ages, quote, instinctively, he had already trained himself in the habit of pretending that he was someone, so it would not be discovered that he was no one. Just thought I'd apply my own splash of nihilism to an episode that's a wash in it. Next, she goes Interpol, reaches to turn on the bright lights, says she can't sleep. I reference that album because it's at the epicenter of my existential playlist. And when in Rome, or perhaps more appropriately this episode, when in Paris, the epicenter of existentialist thought. T pops up, disoriented. Did somebody call? Always suspect, ever since going through that test dream. She says AJ's got this dead streak in him. Chills her to the bone. Dead streak. Obvious, ominous foreshadowing. But gives you pause as a parent. What would make those words come out of a mother or a father? How bad would things have to get? Also, Carmela, through exposition, underscores her own theme this episode. Finally, that expression fits nicely as Coldstone goes on a bit of a dead streak of its own. First Vito, then Fat Dom. 
Two fat fucks from either side of the Hudson. He chalks it up to being spoiled. But she says lots of kids in his cohort were spoiled, and they're all at Ivy League colleges now. Nice, subtle distinction between old money versus new. She continues, it's like this big fuck you to everything. Then T, deadpan, I don't know what that's about. But of course, we know he does. And quite frankly, Carm should too. Livia, genes, environment. Like Melfi says this episode, we've been circling around this for years. But importantly, all of this is a precursor to Carmela's experience in Paris later in the episode. Meadow knocks, saw the light was on, asks to come in, tentatively sits down, says she's going to California. Sadly, no Led Zeppelin playing, though. She wants to be with Finn while he's in dental school out there, and she doesn't know for how long. We cut to a shot of AJ overhearing the whole thing. She's talking about how she doesn't know if she wants to go to law school or med school. This just after AJ got fired from Blockbuster for selling cardboard pop-ups. Carmela calls that a high-class problem. You know, a good problem to have. Made me wonder if there's a site or page that chronicles high-class problems and the varying levels of ridiculousness to them. Kind of like overheard in L.A., but more niche. Funny word, niche. I've been told in a lot of pitch meetings that this idea or that idea is too niche. Too niche, bro. Audience doesn't scale. Niche is a paradox, though. Lots of things are niche, until they aren't. So, if niche is your thing, lean into that shit. There's no such thing as too niche if it's your thing. But what's this? The Gary V experience now? Huge shout out to him, by the way. Instagram's de facto therapist for the creatives, makers, and doubters out there. Like Carlos said this episode, it's not all talk with him. Anyway, Meadow says she can get a lab job at UCLA that will look great on her resume, no matter what she decides. Incidentally, they're also great places to meet your future spouse. Working at a lab at Walter Reed is where I met my wife. Note T doesn't say anything. Carmela's doing all the talking. He's non-reactive, just processing, sorting through all the permutations, her career prospects dwarfing every other soprano in history, her living in sin, but not really caring about it so much, so long as it's not with Jamal Ginsburg. Carmela becoming unraveled as she's losing her grasp on both her children. When Meadow leaves, he notices how much more distraught Carmela is now. The wave's about to break. He looks up at her, then smashes his face in his pillow. Doesn't catch the wave. He passes, hoping he can sneak through the cracks like Meadow just did. Just a casual observation at this point. It feels like the nuclearness of the family is starting to break. Everybody's growing apart. Some of it natural, some of it it finally seems welcome. She looks over at him, disgusted, then looks away. 
He looks at her. They're dodging the inevitable, the back and forth. There's always something. There will always be something until there isn't. Cut to a Costco interior. This one's in Clifton. Phil, Tony, Jerry, and Syl. Conducting business in the bleach and paper towels aisle. Fitting, especially this episode. Also makes me think back to Ralph for some reason. Cleaning supplies and more foreshadowing for what's to come. Also, the consummate minutia nerd in me got me wondering about the deal that allowed them to shoot inside an actual Costco. Recall we saw the exterior of a Costco in Test Dream right before Angelo got clipped by Phil. Again, this is symmetry, intentional symmetry, as Phil is going to clip somebody this episode too. Anyway, they're talking about the Tidelands project, the new Esplanade. Now, the actual Tidelands of New Jersey, those are natural waterways, are owned by the state of New Jersey. A board that oversees the Tidelands does business with the private sector in what effectively amounts to a lease for a period of years. Interestingly, all proceeds from sales or rentals are held in trust for the benefit of the state's education fund. One could argue Tony and Phil are providing a bit of public service for the greater good here. Phil says T's slice of no-shows is untenable. Union can't do five anymore. Something about rollbacks. Besides, Phil's end is way down too. Perhaps more importantly, Always fascinating when you realize they're divvying up money neither of them really have to work for. Talk about high-class problems. But T says his captains rely on those now more than ever. The medical insurance specifically. Sil chimes in. Healthcare costs. It's true. Americans pay more for healthcare than any other nation in the world. But the spending, curiously, hasn't translated to better health outcomes. As of 2018, spending averages around 11000 per person. For the economists among you, or those that enjoy trends and context, or just general sidebar sojourns, healthcare spending as a percentage of GDP was about 5% in the 1960s. Today it's at around 20%. Why is healthcare spending up so much? I know. Alan Greenspan over here. There are a couple few generally accepted reasons. New innovative technologies and therapies. Shit costs money. Administrative waste. Red tape. The kind of stuff T and his crew would love, actually. Built-in barriers to entry. Plus, politicians and medical device salespeople that can be bought. Finally, hospital consolidation. That, of course, leads to a lack of competition, which creates monopoly-style pricing, right about when antitrust lawyers come out to feast. I guess the thing that keeps me curious about all this is the notion of health outcomes. You don't really hear people talking about that ever. Just costs. What can be done to improve health outcomes? A topic for another day and another place, but certainly one that Paulie might like to know about right now. Phil says, All due respect, 
he's calling the shots now. On account, Johnny Sacks folding laundry in Danbury. Love the way Phil brings that up all cool and calm. Hands fucking clasped at the waist. Henry Kissinger over here. Sneaks in the notion that John's boss in name only. Rattling Tony. Like Sinatra, Tony's got Phil under his skin. In spite of a warning voice that comes in the night and repeats. Repeats in his ear. Quick sidebar in Danbury, that prison is the one Orange is the New Black was based on. Besides Johnny Sack, some other famous fictional and non-fictional characters that spent time there. George Young, the guy the film Blow was based on. Nancy Botwin from Weeds. Yeah, I watched it. What? I did it while folding laundry. And singer Lauren Hill spent some time there for underreporting income on her taxes. Literally coming to grips with the realization that, especially for tax purposes, everything is everything. Apparently something happened with the vitamins from last episode. And it looks like therein lies the rub. T gave an inch, now Phil wants a mile. Phil says promises were made with regard to those vitamins that didn't pan out. Chris fucked up the quantities. Au contraire, Tony believes he was shorted. Phil insists it was the other way, but attempts to make it right by pulling a stack out of his pocket. Be a bigger man. T holds him back but says relief on this other situation is better. Using the leverage Phil just gave him for free and upping the stakes. He throws enough of a look to convey he got the last word on that and walks off. I like how the camera lingers for a beat to show Phil watching Tony head out. Little trickles of descent and double-crossing starting to manifest. Cut to the Soprano kitchen. Costco to the kitchen. A regularness of life moment in edits, if ever there was one. A plane in a dogfight taking a nosedive on the History Channel. Replicating a version of what he just went through with Phil. Or what still lies ahead, Ray Vito. We see an occupied France on the TV. Hard to imagine something like that could ever happen. Imagine our capital being stormed and overtaken by a hostile regime and installing a puppet administration that reports up to an autocrat or someone who thinks he's one. Tony's weighing strategic options while eating or avoiding weighing on them while eating, as the case may be. Carmela comes over after her workout to talk to him about a trip to Paris, something she brought up a while back. Well, a trip at least. Recall to Rome with Roe at the end of season two. Also in the penultimate episode then, I believe. Anyway, Paris. She won this trip at a silent auction at the feast. Tony's face, overall, what the fuck now? Tony acts like he remembers but doesn't. And she calls him out on it. He gets up to refill his coffee to avoid the lie. Why do you always say I'm lying? He says, why do you want to go there? The frogs hate us. Of course, begging the question, why are the French called frogs? One theory is that they generally enjoy frogs' legs, likely where T's derivation came from. Another theory, the first king of France was a guy called Clovis. His banner, or coat of arms, or whatever the fuck, had three frogs on it. Yeah, that's right. Three. Either way, it's generally considered pejorative 
and is attributed to the British. T says go to Italy instead, but she says they weren't auctioning a trip to Italy. This is a good deal. A week for two for 5K. Sounds right. Sounds better than good, even if they're flying coach. Tony asks about the euro as he eats his breakfast snack. She's at a loss, but to answer his question, the exchange rate that year averaged around a buck twenty-five. Throwing the kitchen sink at this thing to hopefully make it go away, T says he can't get away for a week. Recall, this is the second time he's told her he can't get away with her. But this time, she can take the hint. Even welcomes it. Without skipping a beat, she says she could go with Roe. T looks at her like, you had this planned all along. She'd rather go with her. It's obvious. The way he nods his head like he found out who did it in Clue. She's been talking about going someplace with Rose since their Rome thing blew up, when Anthony walked through a plate glass door. We never saw that, right? Nah. We got the eyebrows peeled off instead. A wise choice as it was a better visual. She says between Meadow, her spec house, and AJ, she doesn't know what to do anymore. Naturally, travel, getting the fuck out of Dodge, is the perfect antidote to all that. T processes it all and says, you know what? You should go. You deserve it. Says he'll be fine by himself. At which point she suggests it'll be good for him too. Boys will be boys. On their own type of thing. A hall pass of sorts, the likes of which no husband this side of the Middle East or certain parts of rural Utah will ever hear. Ever. She's excited, heads off to call Roe. Her face changes to her days at Montclair State for a beat. She CGI'd herself back 20 years right there. As she heads off, he points to the TV. We see troops marching through the Arc de Triomphe, right at the intersection of 12 radiating avenues. She makes a disapproving face and exits stage left. Cut to T, reading the star ledger at the mall. About as boys will be boys as it gets, at least as far as I'm concerned. That's the Garden State Plaza Mall off Route 17. The cover reads, the Corzine era begins. That's John Corzine, of course, the former governor of New Jersey. The one right before Chris Christie. Before governor, he served as a United States senator, also from New Jersey. Before both those posts, he was top brass at Goldman Sachs. Corzine, unlike Tony, had the makings of a varsity athlete. He was both quarterback of his high school football team and the captain of the basketball squad. Though, all due respect, unlike Tony, he had no fucking idea what it's like to be number one as he lost his gubernatorial bid for re-election to Chris Christie. Also on the cover, New Jets coach maps out his strategy. Referring, of course, to coach Eric Mangini, who at that point was the youngest person to coach in the NFL. He, of course, would go on to make an appearance on The Sopranos later, and his strategy map resulted in one Jets playoff appearance in three seasons at the helm. Then, fucking Vito. Hats and sunglasses, real clandestine, CIA style. The hat's a Notre Dame hat. A nod to the hunchback himself, perhaps. And the fact that Carmela's in Paris. 
connecting the two of them together this episode even more. But also makes you wonder what Phil's wife, Patty, would think if she saw that on his head. Would she, like Carm, also almost throw up the sacrament? He says his brother's over there, watching from a distance, like a sniper lying in wait. Tom Berenger over here. Recall from another toothpick, he received a beating for the ages at the hands of Mustang Sally. He's healed well, but something's off. Guy's a Cypress Hill lyric now. T wonders if he's being sandbagged, more military references. The references are really just getting started this episode. Only thing missing right here is a retaliatory response of the Sun Tzu variety. But T comes close, his version anyway. You sandbagged me and cut your fucking throat open. I'm sorry. Vito tries to reassure, says it's nothing. He's just there. That's all. So what's this all about? Vito wants back in. Asks to sit. T says no, as if sitting would somehow make him complicit. Vito says he's not a fag. His word. Never was. It was the medication he was on for his blood pressure, repeating the storyline from a few episodes ago when he was explaining his situation to his gumad. He says it fucked with his head, but he's over it now. Makes you think. If only it was that easy for Chris and his afflictions. Says he can get a doctor's note. A note from your doctor saying you don't like to suck cock? But seriously, a doctor's note to prove you're not gay? This guy's mythologies and alter egos are finally catching up with him in broad daylight, camouflages notwithstanding. He explains his plan. He's got it all figured out. Says he'll buy his way back in. First 200K goes directly to T. No one else needs to know. Guys really thought this through. Realizes construction's probably out. But meth, running girls, a lot more tolerant atmosphere. If he thinks Gus Fring is tolerant, Okay. Says he has contacts in AC. Can set himself up there. Close, but not too close. Guy's got his own Robert Smith, close to me vibe going right here. He gets up to walk away. Vito says, please, don't turn your back on me. As always, the writing is too good. Also, can't help but hear Clubber Lang telling Apollo Creed the same, only meaner. Don't turn your back on me, sucker! Cut from Tony's back to the back of the bing. Guy's weighing in. Chris says Tony was being stalked. Chris is full of movie tropes these days, being a film impresario and all. Silvio says that's a characteristic of the gays. Living in the closet makes them devious like that. The classic example of the stereotyped doing some stereotyping of their own. T says, speaking of crystal meth, look at this gualio. Roughly translates to boy or street urchin. Pointing to the TV. Is that Mickey Rooney on the drums? Indeed it is. And the film is Strike Up the Band from 1940. Recently watched Black Stallion, also starring Mickey Rooney with my youngest son. Fantastic piece of cinema. Every time. Silvio brings up Richie April. First off, thank you, Silvio. Says when he found that his son was gay, he disowned him. Meaning, that's what you're supposed to do in that world. Sadly, in the world at large, being disowned for being gay, no matter the age or ethnic group, 
is all too common. In many cases, siblings that are convicted felons are treated more favorably. When I worked in suicide prevention, I would hear stories like this all the time. Chris says he has an AA meeting and quickly scoots out. Note, nobody gives a fuck. But Pauly, AA2, disgusted. How many fucking chits this guy going to be able to rack up while the rest of us keep getting pushed to the back of the line? His heh is all time. This motherfucker's heir apparent? Salvatore Lucania must be looking down on us with pride, he says. Referring, of course, to Lucky Luciano, the father of organized crime as we know it in the United States. Sill says everybody's going to want Vito gone, especially Phil. Tony? Fuck Phil. Just trying to polish his rep as a tough prick so he can make boss. But really, how much rep polishing a guy got to do after staying quiet for 20 fucking years? Also, the word choice of polish. <laughs> Possibly a great, or to use a word from Alley Boy's vocabulary, and a Dwat reference to Frank Vincent and Goodfellas. Now go home and get your shine box. T says the trickle of cash coming in from AC would be good. This as Polly stands up and exits without saying a word. But he doesn't really have to. Tony got the message. Not that he needed it from him, though. Remember, he's not running a fucking popularity contest. T stares into the TV as the conductor boisterously conducts his orchestra. Tony perhaps channeling inspiration on how to conduct his own. Got to Carm, packed and ready to go. Well, sort of ready. She's anxious about everything going on, the flying, the security. T smooths it over by saying he got something for her for the trip. A real Louis Vuitton filled with cash, money. An all-around baller move by T. She says she said she loved him when he was in the coma. Does he remember? Then says she should tell him more often. Great retort. Nobody's stopping you. For the record, she never actually said it. Got to Vito, Marie, the kids, and his brother at Rockefeller Center. Enjoying lunch. Recall a place AJ considered ground zero of New York culture back in Everybody Hurts. He's explaining to them that he's in the CIA and they can't say anything to anybody that he's home. They wonder where he's going next. Says he was in Afghanistan. He says they never tell you where you're going next. They think he's a spy. The cut to his brother was great. Either in disbelief or just generally in a fugue state thanks to Mustang Sally. He says he's what they call deep cover. Deep cover, of course, is a code for mole, a term that was brought to life for me by the writings of John le Carre, who sadly passed away recently. The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Great book. All this got me thinking about collaborations between the CIA and the mob, or America's foray into the contract assassination business generally. Of course, we've heard the multiple junior references about this by this point, regarding JFK. Without delving too deep into conspiracy theories here, but also kind of doing exactly just fucking that, the thinking there was that Oswald was a patsy, 
who was set up to take the blame. His killer, Jack Ruby, had ties to the mob. And the kill was thought to have prevented him from talking, from revealing the truth. That wouldn't be the first time an overt public admission of a connection between the mafia and the CIA would end in death. Of course, Sam Giancana, the once Chicago boss, is credited by some to have been responsible for getting Kennedy elected. After that, he was allegedly recruited for a Castro conspiracy and eventually the one involving the Kennedy assassination. However, before he was to testify to that effect, before a congressional committee, he too was killed. Found on the floor by a caretaker next to the sausage and peppers, he was pan frying. For Junior. Now, a bunch of docs that contextualized Giancana's involvement became declassified a few years ago. And there's a couple of three things that came out of it that I found fascinating. The connectivity between the mafia and the CIA actually went back to the 50s. America's post-war confidence came to a screeching halt then, when the Soviet Union adopted Castro's Cuba as its political satellite. Just a short boat ride from American shores. The wisdom, going back even before Kennedy, was take out Castro, problem solved. How much both presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy actually knew of the CIA's actual plans, however, is still contested. But to take out a head of state was a tall order, something Phil would no doubt have problems with. Recall, whack a boss of a family? And who wants that kind of blood on their hands and the fallout that comes with it? So to offset that, the CIA supposedly set up a human shield of sorts, a Robert Mayhew, to insulate their involvement as well as the White House's, to approach Giancana and his partner, John Roselli. This guy Mayhew was a Michael Clayton fixer of sorts in the private sector before being commissioned for his services by the CIA. Mayhew was said to have offered Giancana 150 k to take out Castro, a price set by the CIA, but he declined. Said he'd do it for free. See, Castro shut down their casino businesses in Havana. They were already bleeding revenues because of him. Arguably orders of magnitude greater than the 150 k contract price. Another obvious reason, they likely saw it as a get-out-of-jail-free card of sorts. Imagine a bunch of Agent Harris types effectively acquiescing. You get this done for us, and it's back to square one on all your rap sheets. And to RFK's chagrin, then Attorney General, that's effectively what happened. But, of course, as history reminds us, none of this panned out. Giancana couldn't fucking sell it. Put a couple of Bevilacqua brothers on it instead of Tom Cruise's from Collateral. And, yes, I know they weren't actually brothers. The results spoke for themselves. Botched attempts, cold feet, double crossings. As with everything, there's more to the story. But as Ralphie once said, another time. Not Paul Harvey over here. Back on Vito, he talks to his wife while the kids skate outside. Note the brother looming in the back. Again, Vito's cover. At a very minimum, an interesting crease 
on this origami of an episode. Also note the statue of Prometheus, the god of fire over Vito's shoulder, who would get drunk and misapply genitalia in humans at creation, symbolizing homosexuality in some scholarly circles. Regardless, great subtext for Vito's character this episode, not only because he's gay, but also storming back into New Jersey hot, ready to play with fire. He says things are looking good with Tony. He doesn't have a problem, and that they should have another kid. Guy's got the eagerness of a hooper on a 10-day contract that all of a sudden gets picked up for the rest of the season. Then, cut to him alone, in a motel room, putting out a cigarette. Quite a contrast. Such a little detail. The way we portray ourselves outwardly in public, places like Rockefeller Center, versus the way we really are in our quieter moments alone. He calls Jim, a bit of unfinished business there, but naturally Jim wants nothing to do with him. Vito says it was his kids. He blames his own shit on his kids. Didn't love that. They are the biggest victims this episode. That moment at the very end where Vito Jr. transforms before our very eyes, like when Anakin became Darth Vader. But something registered this time that's different from other times I've heard it. Parents blame their kids and vice versa for shit all the time. One of the great tragedies of the regularness of life. The circle of hurt and resentment that can certainly heal, but all too often simply propagates. But Jim's not getting cute with the point of views here like me. He calls bullshit. Says it was the life he couldn't live without. Speaking of the life... Carmela and Roe in Paris. Back of a cab for starters, but still. <laughs> Love that it starts here. Taking the facade or the mind's eye of Paris and turning it on its fucking head. Nevertheless, Carm looks to be in a trance or shock. She got out of New Jersey. Roe, on the other hand, got an upset stomach. Whatever they're saying to each other is overpowered by the French rap an all-too-common relic of the pre-Uber and pre-five-star rating review era. To some extent, I guess, it still rears its head in Ubers from time to time. Some people could give a fuck. And to a certain degree, you got to kind of respect that in these times. The track is Ouvre les yeux by PM. Open your eyes. There's Vanilla Sky again, but also something Carmela's been told to do before. Then. It was Dr. Krakauer. Here, it's a suburban French rapper. Open your eyes. Carm's looking around, seeing a mixture of landmarks like Les Invalides, contrasted with everyday things like Quicksilver stores. The sacred and the propane. Fitting here, especially since that notion, the sacred and the profane, that is, was posited by French sociologist Emile Durkheim. Back on Vito, walking into a stop and shop in Hackensack. Anybody else, every time you hear the word Hackensack, the first thing that comes to your mind is Billy Joel moving out. Who needs a house out in Hackensack? Is that all you get for your money? The contrast between Carm and Vito is interesting here. She's in an unfamiliar place. He's in a familiar one. But both are a little bit lost, disoriented. Adrift. 
Important distinction, though. Carmelo's much stronger. Moored. One's going to get through this. One isn't. He sees someone he recognizes, but isn't too familiar to us. Yet. Vito walks over. The guy tries to avoid him. This is Terry Doria. Hop along, Kesedich. What do you know? What do you say? Note, we've heard this line before. I think Pussy says it in Funhouse, the same episode he was killed. Symmetry. Hopalong is a reference to Hopalong Cassidy, a fictional character. Guy had a wooden leg, hence the inspiration for the moniker. Vito tries to hug him, but he recoils. For a split second, you think Vito's life is in imminent danger, that he's going to get ambushed, himself sandbagged, so to speak. But as usual, That'd be too fucking obvious. We learn that Terry agreed to meet Vito in the store. Great flip of the script. Vito's trying to gather intel. You know, real mole-like. Terry's got his own agenda. Says he's hard up right now. Child support. Asks for 20K at two points. Vito agrees, but bumps him to two and a half. Then pats his arm. As Terry looks down as if he's got grayscale developing at the point of contact. Jorah Mormont over here. Then you're thinking, this guy know he's getting free money? Did he just intentionally pull off a long con? Also, there's an irony here. Terry's ostensibly acting in the interest of his kids. But Vito, by coming back, is arguably acting against his kids' best interest. I realize that someone who's delinquent on child support payments isn't father of the year, but I saw a bit of an interesting contrast there nonetheless. Cut to the Lou Costello Memorial. Familiar place at this point. The penultimate episode doing yeoman's work, rooting us in the Sopranos firmament. Phil walks up alongside the nameplate at the foot of the statue. And this is kind of interesting. Right in the everything's intentional category. Back in the day, Joe Pesci and Frank Vincent did a stand-up act that resembled the Abbott and Costello routine. Fully committed to existentialist resignation at this point for purposes of this episode, it's a cold morning, like the Todd Rundgren song. Especially for Tony, as the song reminds us, for me, there can be no peace. For me, there can be no rest. I believe, though I've tried my best, I'm condemned, it seems, to a life of restlessness and broken dreams. Tony walks over, Perry in the background, dapping it up with Jerry Torciano. He attempts small talk. Says he heard on the radio, that's 1010 Winds, the oldest all news station in the U.S., that the tunnel was a parking lot. Phil pulls a Tony, fucks the preamble. You said you were going to take care of Vito. Tease over it. What is it with you and Vito? Some people have used this line to concoct a theory that Phil and Vito had a thing going of their own. But for me, that's simply a bridge too far. Phil says he was over at Marie's and could tell he had been around, even though she played it cool. He got a sixth sense or something now. You're fucking Karnak the Great now too, huh? I gotta tell you, Anthony. A great play on Johnny Carson's character, Karnak 
the Magnificent. Double whammy here. Deep cut cultural reference from Tony's prime. Nevertheless, malapropt. Phil says, if Vito was here and you knew about it, the severity of the tone, the posturing, the summoning of what it was like to be behind bars for 20 fucking years injected into just three words. Knew about it. T turns around and says, fuck this, walks off. Pigeons fly away, as if shots were just fired, which in many ways, they were. Beautiful detail. Cut to Carmen Rowe in a cafe. True story. When I took my wife to Paris a few years back, I sought out this very location and think I came close, but who the fuck knows? They're at a brasserie called Royal Pereire. Carm's checking herself out in a compact mirror while Roe enjoys her cigarette in public, free from the domestic laws back home that prohibit her from living her best life. Roe's also reading a camera manual. Regularness of life, New Jersey, or whatever bumblefuck corner you occupy, not worth documenting. But funny, we're all one plane, train, or automobile away from becoming our own Annie Leibovitz. Jazz is playing in the background, French language and accents all around. They're both in heaven. And that Sunday, wherever we were watching from, so were we. Honestly, just miking up Paris alone was so transportive. Carmela's mesmerized by the fact that nobody knows who they are. Like Carmine said, they've wiped the slate clean, even if only for a week. She's rifling through a guidebook, trying to get a schedule together. She stumbles upon something about Eloise and Abelard, a throwback to Mr. Wegler. Roe wants Carm to forget New Jersey on this trip. Leave it where it is. But home always rears its head. Sometimes welcome, sometimes not, as we'll see. Another bit of latent hypocrisy that undergirds both their existences. Carm says she wants to hit up the Louvre first. If you had a dime for every time that was top of the fucking list for a visit to France, you'd earn like Vito. Roe encourages her to use her French, not English. Carmen says she feels uncomfortable despite her brief time learning it in school. Not like T, who, when they went to Miami once, guy knew six words, but he was like Ricardo Montalban or something. The Mexican-American actor you know or think you know. Case in point, I could have sworn he was in a Bruce Lee film, but he wasn't. Also, Tony and Carmen Miami? Could have made for a fun flashback. Roe can barely stay awake listening to her. Perhaps a sign for where this is going to go with the two of them. Let's see. Cut to moments later, the two of them lost on a bridge. The Pont Alexandre. Carmen's looking for Rue Dauphine, named so after the son of Henry IV. Meanwhile, Roe's looking for her other fucking glove. Both are heads down in their own travel malaise until Carm looks up and notices their surroundings. Mind-blown emoji. Who could have built this? I often wonder the same thing about this show. But to answer Carm's question, the bridge was built by two guys called Jean Rissal and Amade Albi. They notice a boat racing toward them, one of those passenger tourist ones, Roe shouts out, like Charade. That's the 1963 film starring Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, filmed in Paris. Interestingly, the CIA is a plot point in that film as well. But more fascinating for me was the word choice, Charade. Lots of movies have been filmed in Paris. Why this one? 
charade. In particular, appended not only to this episode, but as the show winds down, the series as a whole. So much of everything we've experienced to this point has been a charade, a farce, fake, bullshit, a facade. All words, by the way, the show has told us over and over through its characters since the very beginning. Nevertheless, there's a constant, something that keeps it rooted in the real, something that renders every frame of it authentic and timeless. To quote Svetlana, people are people. It's not TV, it's HBO, is possible as a tagline because of this series. The ultimate unfiltered companion guide to the real regularness of life, particularly in America, told through a slice of life of a glorified crew in North Jersey, circa 2000s. Carm can't take her eyes off the sculptures the same way we can't take our eyes off the series as we cut to... Now, this is two fucking Sopranos. Motherfucking classic. Silvio yelling to a guy changing the sign outside the bing. Make sure you clean that shit off her tit. (laughs) My God. Case in fucking point to my whole campfire folk song a second ago. The hue of the sky makes it so much better. Note, similar skies in both scenes. But what a difference in terms of environs. Seppenwall and Seitz called this episode a tale of two cities told in edits. So true. The original cities in the Dickens novel were Paris and London. Wonder how London would feel getting bumped for Essex County. T pulls Sill aside to tell him that Vito's gotta go. You gotta pick your battles. So true. I say that once a week to my kid when he doesn't have his dinner plate filled with just plain pasta like every other day. T can't keep fighting with Phil. Their businesses are too intertwined. No-show jobs versus veto. It's a no-brainer, right? Not so much. Tony's upset about it. He doesn't really want to do it. There's a lot of uneasiness about this. Coming from the top, by the way, in both families. I'm talking, of course, about Tony and Phil, as we'll see in a second. I don't know what it is. Loyalty or just respect for the dollar but he doesn't think Vito's committed a crime punishable by death. And that's interesting and different. And to use the overworked but true word, groundbreaking. He says to give the job to Carlo since he was so worked up about it in the first place. Love tease for what here? Saying all the hospital shit, the recovery, etc. For what? To come back to this? The language, the presentation, and delivery of it. The fucking subtlety. It's unrivaled. Inside the bing, Tony signals the bartender for a drink. Silvio says he'll ready Carlo. He checks his voicemail. It's calm, saying they reached safe and sound. This, as he's watching a new dancer. Strong eye contact both ways. That music, that haunting synth pad. It's Giorgio Moroder's Night in White Satin. No doubt a throwback to the season two penultimate episode, but also the dancers wearing 
white satin gloves. And you recognize right there that Tony's found a solution to relieve his stress. From the dancer, we're back on Carmen Row. We're used to getting a cut to Meadow here, but she went to California to see about a boy. Carmen Row are out and about. Row's curious about all the plaques on the corners everywhere. They stumble upon one about Francois Martin, a French resistance fighter during World War II, shot by the Germans right at that very spot, a spot on the Rue du Jour near Saint Eustache. From one martyr to another, cut to Phil bitching to his wife about the tailor. He fucked up his Zanellas, tailored trousers for men since 1954. Patty calls the tailor a poverette. Guy's losing his eyesight. She says she'll take them to the Korean tailor on the way to church tomorrow. The identification of their backup tailor by his ethnicity is funny, but also sad and accurate. A window to Patty before we even really get acquainted with her. She's concerned about showing her face at church on account of a gay in her family. Emphasis on the article, a. There's a Protestant minister from Denver coming tomorrow. Among other things, even more conservative than her own Catholic-rooted beliefs. Was she referring to Ted Haggard, I wondered? A pastor who admonished homosexuality but was later outed. The timelines line up. Phil lays down and takes it in. Interesting visual here. Phil taking it easy. Glenn Frey over here. Some connectivity. We got to look at Vito in a private moment. And now we get one of Phil. Somehow, some way, their fates are intertwined. Or so it would seem. The first real indication of that happens right here. She says Vito's damned if he doesn't renounce. Now, my own naivete on the subject leads me to believe that the church's view then would be, confession notwithstanding, akin to the Cornelius brothers and sister Rose. It's too late to turn back now. Phil says he knows. She's preaching to the choir. Hard to tell if he's mad or thinking. There's a level of ambivalence in him we haven't seen yet. Probably because we haven't seen him alone, really. Not around the guys, not around Tony, etc. His guard is down. He's not as homophobic as Patty. That's the signal here. Patty's hardcore. She's the embodiment of the intersection of politics and religion. I loved Autopsy's expression about what Chase was commenting on here. The politicization of religion. She wants Vito to cure or pay for his sin. Note this as she puts her makeup on. The ultimate juxtaposition of domesticity and criminal conspiracy. Phil crosses his hands and sighs, almost hinting a look of guilt or even concern for himself. At the very least, he would be taking out a made man. And he's all about codes. This thing either means something or it doesn't. Cut to Paris, an Ecce Homo statue, 
depicting Christ on trial before the Romans, translates to behold the man. Pontius Pilate is thought to have said it. Carm walks into a church, St. Eustache, watches a priest talking to some kids, lecturing them on some topic en français. Now, I had more than a semester and a half of French in school, but the only word that triggered after all these years was voiture. That's car. Safe to say whatever he was talking about had nothing to do with antiquity. Rose lighting a candle. Two, actually. And we can guess why. As can Carm, as we'll see in a few moments. Carm comes down next to her, staring at the statue of Mary and baby Jesus at the altar. Staring. Mother and child. We've seen her do this before at museums in the city with Meadow. When she cried about how she was married to a child. This time, though, you wonder if she's thinking about AJ. For a beat, it looks like the baby Jesus has given her the finger. It's the angle. So perfect, if that was the intent. As AJ just gave them both the finger at the top of the episode. But the show, as always, is fucking with us. She wasn't thinking about AJ. By implication and cut, she was thinking of Tony. We're on him, driving. Looks to be in the early stages of one of his panic attack while driving episodes. Both real or dreamt. ACDC's playing. Back in black, we're on Q 104.3. New York's only classic rock station. Always love that. Only. It matters. It implies, fuck everything else. The panic attack escalates until we realize he's getting blown. Same dancer from the Bing earlier. He pulls up to her house. She thanks him for the ride. Went both ways, I'd say. He cracks open his wallet to give her some extra cash, but she politely declines. As he pulls out, no pun intended, his phone rings. The music changes to Leonard Skinner's Simple Man, the nice farewell to Vito outro song, the lyrics, take your time, don't live too fast, troubles will come and they will pass. Go find a woman, yeah, and you'll find love. And don't forget, son, there is someone up above. Back on Vito, great shot of him driving, capturing the motion. He wants to know about his offer. T says he needs to know who the AC contacts are. Says to meet him at the mall, 11 a.m., don't be late. You think Vito's smart enough to figure out the play? Or at least be suspicious? And what was T's play here? Get him after the meet? Before? Sandbag the sandbaggers? Maybe get access to that cash first. That 200K he mentioned. Pull a Terry Doria of his own. Cut to Vito heading back up to his motel room, the courtesy motel in Fort Lee. The wide overhead shot of him in an empty parking lot, setting the stage. I'm a shot guy, in case that wasn't evident by this point. Those overhead establishing shots. Man, especially in moments like these ratchet up the precision storytelling that's unfolding before us. The second shot of him opening his door, right here you know something's coming. Two shots to convey the same thing? That's not accidental. Less is more. But here, it's an invitation to focus. As soon as he closes the door, he gets smashed three times with pool cues. Three. 
Jerry Torciano, and Fat Dom Gamiello. They tape him up. Jerry flicks the lights on. And out of the closet comes Phil Leotardo, the third person in this hit. Three, again. Phil's menacing look is worthy of its own statue, like one of those heads Carmela and Roe walk by in a second. Safe to say, this was not part of Tony's play. Like with Richie, shit got done that had to get done, but his hands somehow remained clean. Importantly, neither were on his terms. But one bothered him, and one didn't. Phil sits down calmly, calls Vito a fucking disgrace. Gives Jerry a look, and that's that. They beat him to death. Always fascinating is the cut to Phil's hand clutching the top cover of his motel bed. Conveying, this was hard for him. But also, why the fuck are you touching that shit with your bare hands? He forced himself to watch what was happening. Almost as a purge of sorts. Whether true or not about his own closeted sexual preferences, the subtlety of the acting created enough of a space to raise the question. The sounds of the cars blasting by is a great touch. The world outside keeps whizzing by. One minute you're in it, the next minute you're not. Regardless, it's just cars whizzing by. Voitures whizzing by. Now, worth mentioning here, he was out. Vito, that is. Scot-free, if you will. At least for the foreseeable future. But he was sucked back in, again, no pun intended, by greed and money. And in Tony's cadence, for what? It ended up blowing up in his face, quite literally. Cut to Carm, out at night with Roe, taking pictures of a place that looks like Satrial's, if it had a neon sign at least. Imagine that. Another example of home following you wherever you go. The spot is called Au Pied de Cochon, Pig's Foot. And it's open 24-7, 365. Hasn't closed its doors since 1947. I'm guessing 2020 was an exception. An asterisk for the record books. From Pig's Feet to the Pork Store, cut to Chris and Murmur. Murmur's in the middle of a joke about pigs. The rest of the gang is there. One-eyed Bobby comes in in a hurry, likely carrying information. He wore that detail in his cadence alone. Says Vito was found beat to death in a motel in Fort Lee. Bobby's cop on the take-up there told him. Mink. Now, a listener proactively reached out to me about this word, some context and how it's used here. A slang version of it is Ming. Joe Pesci's character in Goodfellas says it that way. It's a very crude form of dick. It's used to convey outrage, like here, or incredulity. Plus, the homicide detectives told him Vito had a pool cue rammed up his ass. A long silence. Silvio looks at T, who's looking down. Everybody, except for Christopher, is waiting for T to speak. 
But Chris goes first. Lover's quarrel, maybe? William Shakespeare over here. He says everybody knows who did it. Then Carlo comes in. You hear the news? Jimmy Olsen over here. That's the photojournalist for the fictional Daily Planet. Superman. Then, Carlo essentially punches his ticket to join Vito sooner rather than later. Just saying. Fucking Ray Curto vibes or something right here. Says, you gotta admire the guy. It's not all talk with him. Not all talk. This fucking guy. A lot of guys in Tony's world hang themselves. He gives them enough rope, they hang themselves. But gotta wonder, do they even realize it half the time? Tony saves face in front of the crew, lets that land, discards it because, well, Carlo's discardable. But later, says, would have been the same had I got to him first. Phil had to clear his family name, yada, yada. He walks off only half believing the pitch he gave the gang. Patsy says he wished he borrowed money from Vito. Hey, wait a sec. Someone already beat him to that. And like clockwork, we cut to him. Terry Doria, proud of himself. Great comedy amidst the chaos. Cut to T and Silvio in front of Satrials by the green painted wall. Another throwback to episodes past. Like Lauren Hill mentioned earlier, in doo-wop that thing, T breaks it down for Sil. It's not about Vito. It's about me. Don't think I haven't been through the same predicament. This was a slight to him. Phil saying he can kill a captain in his own family and there isn't a fucking thing he can do about it. Is this the beginning of the end for Phil and T? Or has it already happened? And where's Johnny Sack in all this? That's part of the point, too, here. Changing of the guard. Only T had his Manchurian candidate of sorts in the form of Johnny Sack. After all, he was a pragmatist. Malleable. Phil? Not so much. Guy's more like James Harden. Don't know where he is or when the fuck he's coming. But when he's on the court, he'll torch you. Occasional clunkers notwithstanding. Carmela calls. He answers. Is Paris burning? Dropping another History Channel reference. Also a film of the same name from the 60s that chronicles the liberation of Paris from German rule. Meanwhile, Silvio gets the green wall treatment. Guy was certainly due. Consigliere and all. She says it's raining. Tony. When it drizzles, Carmen says he's worse than Roe with the pop references. Nice way to connect the two of them, actually. A lot of tenuous connections happening between characters, this episode in particular. And what is that reference? Well, it comes from another film from the 60s, Paris When It Sizzles. The title comes from a Cole Porter song called I Love Paris. I love Paris in the winter when it drizzles. I love Paris in the summer when it sizzles. She says he'd love it there, history channel, and then some. He asks about the toast, the French toast, then the fries, the French fries. What this does in my mind is display T's ability to compartmentalize. 
to turn off the part of his brain that's fuming over Phil and channel it into silly references and chuckle-level humor. She asks about Meadow. She's been in touch with T, more than expected. She was wondering about the particulars of servicing cars in areas where there's no snow. Gentle reminder, of course, she's in California. Carm asks about Prince Albert, AJ, and Tony says he'd fit in right over there in France. None of those dipshits want to work either. Anti-socialist sentiments running high even in 2006. Back to Silvio. Should we hit one of his guys? He says that's the problem. Joe Bananas went after Carlo Gambino. Made guys got killed. The war went seven years. Now, we've talked about that in episodes past, so I'm not going to get into it now, but it's basic economics to T. When guys are on the mattresses readying for battle, they're not out earning. Then T says, all Phil cares about is fucking money. Funny, since T doesn't want a war lest he get smaller envelopes either. T asks about a wire room in Sheepshead Bay, one of Phil's spots in Brooklyn, named after a kind of fish. Phil sleeping with the fishes in Sheepshead Bay would be too good, right? Buddy Rich, the drummer, came from Sheepshead Bay. No doubt Mickey Rooney's drumming in that scene earlier was reminiscent of Rich's genius and gift. Sill confirms the guys have seen the spot, and for now, that's all we're supposed to know about it. Cut to AJ laughing while chatting on the web in his underwear. The nerd in me wonders what chat client he was using back then. Was it straight AIM? Or was he deep into ICQ chat rooms? Or would he have found his way onto MySpace at that point? T walks in on him, pissed, disgusted. Would that rage at what Phil did somehow flow downhill onto AJ? Let's see. Cut back to Paris. Pigeons scattering again triggering a godfather level of suspense and concern at this point, which one of them is in danger? Could be in danger. Was that phone call with Tony the last time they'd ever speak? These are the places my head goes. Also explains why I needed therapy. And still do. But everything's okay. Those birds were just reacting to the sound of motorcycles this time. Rose getting a guy's number a French biker, decidedly not with the Vipers, that they have a chapter in Paris anyway, says he's in Vegas six months a year working at a friend's restaurant. They should hook up. Love that when you're abroad, the distance between Vegas and North Jersey is but a blip on the radar. But when you're in the city proper, going from the east side to North Jersey requires an act of God. Next. They're inside a museum. They walk past the severed heads of Notre Dame. All former kings, part of the Vandalisme Revolutionnaire. We see seven, but there are 28 in all. Rose talking about the guy, lives in Belleville, a neighborhood in Paris, likes that there's a Belleville in France, just like New Jersey. Again, home rearing its head at every turn. Carm says, You're not really going to go out with them, are you? He's like 26 years old. Rose, duh, is perfectly pitched. 
she's great this episode. And looking back after all these years, the Paris episode is as much about Roe as it is Carm. Carm's lucky to have a Roe. She's a better character because of it. And the combination is a gift that keeps on giving to us viewers. Carm's enamored with the jewels in the joint. Rose enamored with the specter of getting laid. I rest my case. Cut to an exterior shot of the Gallo-Roman baths. All of this, by the way, is at the Musée de Cluny. Carmela says the thought of all the people, generation after generation, that lived and occupied these places, is sad. Roe focuses, finally. The word sad has that effect. Inviting Carm to continue. She brings up the hospital. The who am I, where am I going bit. Roe's eyes widen. Carm says she didn't know what it meant then. But coming here, to Paris, has made her feel the same way. Ro, let me get your picture. That's the show's way of telling us, there's your fucking sentiment, you one-shoot cocksucker. We have to earn this moment. And Ro's beat here is so perfect because by attempting to trivialize the moment, it allows Carmela's next line to land firmly on your chin. And depending on where the fuck you are mentally, the moment you hear it, knock you on your ass. We worry so much. Sometimes it feels like that's all we do. But in the end, it just gets washed away. All of it just, just gets washed away. She says it twice. I read an interview Chase did some time ago where he said he was constitutionally inclined to be gnawed to death by doubt. Carm's sentiment here echoes that beautifully. And, gotta say, I feel the same way. I think a lot of people do. And the respect and admiration for Chase comes from his ability to capture all this. What he feels or has felt in the past and apply it in various forms and manifestations through his characters. They hug it out long enough for us to feel like we're a part of it. Ro hums a French tune. She's humming La Vie en Rose, if you listen closely. Edith Piaf. Cut to Marie at home, surrounded by family, Patty, some fucking guy, and Phil. Marie doesn't think it was a gay thing. (laughs) Again, the realism. As brutal or cringeworthy as it is to hear. It's how people really talk, even today. The authenticity flows both ways, good and bad. But Patty, proving herself to be worthy of her husband's gangsterness, behind every great man, right? Says, They pick up strangers in bars and truck stops. Another woman who's there is beside herself at the very thought. No words, but not necessary. The expression says it all. Nice shades, though. Made me think of what Gazo, the lone shark in Rocky, 
what his mom might look like. Marie says he was beaten so bad he didn't even look like a person anymore. The undoing over here. Sans a suspect or a trial. Phil says you can't dwell on that as the TV gets louder to show the early stages of a bodybuilding competition. He gets really mad. Turn that off. Begs the question. Was he aroused? Nerd sidebar. The screen was made by Dell. Didn't know they made TVs. Maybe all the ones they did are still locked up in a truck in Feature's garage. That would at least explain why you don't see them too many places. Marie continues, Certain members of the family haven't called, aunts and uncles, not even to talk to the kids. She wonders how people can be so cruel. Not realizing, of course, who she's sandwiched in between as she says it. Without skipping a fucking beat, Patty, it is a sin after all, Marie. The church is very clear on that. Contextual update, Pope Francis recently supported same-sex civil unions. But Marie says, you came. Patty says, Father says, hate the sin, love the sinner. But wait a sec, shouldn't that apply to Vito? Can somebody get Johnny Sack on the phone? These guys are bending more rules than the Catholic Church over here. Marie says she wishes she was dead, about as low as one can get. Phil offers, well, says he'll make the funeral arrangements, pushing this thing along here. Says he loved Vito like a brother-in-law, which makes Patty cry on cue. Fucking pro this one. Talk about an Abbott and Costello routine of their own, these two. But it's not for what you think. It's for the 47-year-old blinding Taylor. Driving this Lionel to the finish line, undeterred by Patty's attempt to derail this thing, Phil finishes. Maybe it's better on some level not for the kids to have that role model. Cut to Melfi's office. Silence. Distance. Love the choice to start with the wide shot behind Melfi, creating extra space between us and Tony. He's distressed. Suited up, though. When versus when doesn't he wear a suit for therapy is an interesting side fascination of mine. She's kicking one leg up and down, waiting for some engagement. Her insight, all the women in your house are gone. He's got exactly zero interest in talking about that or Carmela. Checks his watch. He's fuming. That feeling in AJ's room has been transferred here. She asks if there's anything he does want to talk about before time's up, and he can't look at her for several beats. But then drops this timely bomb. How about the fact I hate my son? What do you think about that? The expressiveness. So good. She adjusts, is rattled by that. Who wouldn't be? Let me tell you, he begins. There's his preamble. If Carmela let me kick AJ's ass like my father kicked my ass, he might have grown up with some balls. Some cold stones of his own. Like you? Yeah, like me. She defends AJ. Anthony, we've been dancing around this for years. How you live. 
What is it you want from your life? What is it you want from your life? Gives you pause every time, doesn't it? I do something called morning pages. I actually started typing them because the longhand got too difficult. That, and I started using a tool called Rome to organize my thoughts, my work, everything I've read in the past. It's all in one place now. It's actually been pretty game-changing. But the morning pages are automated now. I type a shortcut and three prompts pop up. One of those prompts is, no surprise, what is it you want from your life? It'll be interesting to see how that prompt is answered over time, how much it changes or how much it stays the same. Tony doesn't answer, but there's a long beat of him in thought, a moment to be real, to really explore root causes, as Melfi said in the past. But what does he do? Goes right back to the thing that's gnawing him, completely disregarding her prompt. Says, couldn't even hit him if I wanted to. He's so fucking little, the way he says little. Carmela's side of the family, they're small people. Then, Hugh, you could knock him over with a fucking feather. Oh! Tony's doing what so many of us do, what I certainly do. So much so that I catch myself doing it, but proceed anyway. Use someone's question, someone I trust, I should be clear, as an invitation to filibuster on whatever the fuck is gnawing me in that moment. Then, Mike Drop Melfi walks into a psychiatrist's office. What you resent Carmela doing for AJ, protecting him from his father, is the very thing you had often wished your mother had done for you. And with that, back to France. At a restaurant, Rose in love with the foie gras, that's the liver of a duck or goose fattened by gavage, or being force-fed. Sounds lovely. Carm goes off on another traveling philosopher's rant. Existence this, imaginary that. I personally love it. And my first trip to Paris was shortly after this season, so she was top of mind then, as she is now. Funny how that worked out, too. If you had asked me then, in Paris, if I'd be doing this podcast, to have taken the lengths I took to make it something that's hopefully been real and authentic, like its underlying subject, I would have said that's nuts. Carmela continues. It's like when you die. Life goes on without you. Like it does in Paris when we're not here. She's echoing her son from seasons ago. Livia, to a degree, too. All influences, no doubt. Roe innocently attempts to change the subject, talk about shopping. Again, she's pitch perfect here. Carm says she's going to need a Kelly bag. That's Hermes. That bag alone is probably worth four of their silent auction trips. Carm brings up St. Eustache, the church they were in, the candles, one for both Jackies, she reckons. Carm wants to talk about Jackie Jr. Roe asks, what's there to talk about? If she only knew, T sanctioned a hit on him. Or Carm, for that matter. But we're wondering the same thing. How the fuck is this relevant right now? Just then, 
the food comes. The preparations are described in great detail to them both. The one word I picked up from my four years of high school French was canard, or duck. Fitting that that's what Carmela ordered, right? Just after Tony's resentment of her was discussed in therapy, she orders the one thing on this earth he loves as much, if not more, than her. Those beautiful, innocent creatures. Then, Carm goes back to Jackie Jr. again. Says she can't imagine losing a son. Then Ro, we're here. Great dinner, great vacation. Why would you bring that up? Why did she bring it up? To make herself feel better about her own situation with AJ? Why would you bring New Jersey here? Why can't we just have a good time? How Roe handles that is legendary. When she says she pictures her son with his dad and Jesus. Then, an awkward silence. I'm going out with Michelle. Silverware going crazy. Carmen's invited to tag along. Great attempt to soften the landing a bit. But she's going to walk along the Seine. One last time. From French cuisine to Italian. Cut to Carlo, making sauce or gravy, or whatever honorific he personally gives it. An interesting starting point for this sequence, looking back. Sale is vacuuming up rat poop. Are they amongst rats? An interesting comment, given that we don't know of any or haven't seen any since the very beginning of the season. Pontecorvo, Ray Curdo. Fat Dom comes in, one of the guys who killed Vito. Comes in hot, fresh off that kill. The pirates of pursuit, the brigands of Brajol. Hands sill an envelope from a game out in Canarsie. That's a residential neighborhood in Brooklyn. He's thankful to Sill for the high rollers he sent that way. Sill invites him to stay for linguini fra diav. That's fra diavlo, a spicy seafood pasta. But Fat Dom's on his way to see his daughter in Matuchin, which is kind of close to Perth Amboy. Close enough that it got me doing a little reminiscing and global thinking. If you know, you know. Starts talking a little shit about Vito. Sits down right in front of Silvio. Interesting foreshadowing there, actually, looking back. Says what happened was a terrible thing. Sil recites the ages of the kids left without a father. Dom wonders if the pool cue was chalked. Nobody got it, still don't really get it, other than the muscle memory of what one does when they wield a pool cue is chalk while sizing up a shot. He continues, really going down in a blaze of glory over here. I didn't really care too much for Carlo, but right here, I'm practically ride or die for the guy. Dom says he's just breaking balls, calls what happened a tragedy enunciating every syllable. Throws Carlo a look, could have burned right through the back of his head, readying his bit, chalking his pool cue. That old homo actor, Raymond Navarro? He had an ivory dildo stuck up his ass when they found him. What are you up on all this shit, huh, Don? Come to think of it, he was from Jersey, too. What'd they find up your mother's cunt? Time to hit the trail from a touch, huh? What do you say? My mistake. Carlo's lipstick was on Vito's car. 
Still hits him over the head with a rat shit filled vacuum. 0.01 seconds later. Why the fuck did Dom have such a hard on for Carlo? We can all arrive at some obvious conclusions, but it's never really explored as all. Carlo grabs a chef's knife and uppercut stabs him twice in the gut. Sill jumps on his back to defuse him as Fat Dom goes for one last power drive. Then, Carlo gets in numbers three and four, and they launch him onto the table. Laid out like something I've seen before, but can't think of what. I'm getting flashes of seven, but I'm not fully convinced that's what's pushing against my skull to come out. Afterward, fucking Sill brushes himself off before screaming aloud. Dom's cell phone rings. The ringtone is Beethoven's for Elise. Raw carnage to regularness of life in an instant. Just like with Vito. Beat to death, then cars whizzing by. We hear the sounds of Satrial's meat grinders, bringing up visions of the pilot scene with Emil Kolar. Is Dom next? Sill lays out the game plan. Wait till the store closes. Tell Patsy they had to go, something about a pipe. And, importantly, no more cutting up in the work area. DNA. Ditch his car. And finally, get some Biangeline. Bleach. Later that day, Syl and Carlo are playing cards while waiting it out. T pulls up, walks over, notices the door's locked, yells for Syl to open it. Syl sighs and grimaces. Were they not going to tell him? He opens it, says, Tone, you don't want to come in here, get back in your car and go for a ride. T pushes him out of the way and walks in. As the door closes, we see a sign that reads, Effective Alarm Systems. Not so much here, it would seem. Still explains what happened as T surveys the scene. A yellow mop bucket, the details, the Checo pasta boxes, Carlo changed out into an oversized Satriali shirt, tucked in, mind you. Real old school. Sill sort of throws Carlo under the bus, but Carlo says, Sill hit him first. TV playing in the background. When everything registers for Tony. He throws his hands up and walks out. Sill follows him. You go, you don't know nothing. You were right. They killed a made guy. This is what happens. T, recognizing they're talking outside, says, say hello to Gab. T drives away. Perry, I should say. Long shot on Perry driving. Tony frantically thinking. Reaches into his pocket. Takes out his phone. He's unclear on how to proceed. Cut to home. AJ playing video games with Hernan. Rhiannon's in between them. It's a first-person shooter game. Something post-007 but pre-Call of Duty. Hernan's making bad jokes about skateboarding. As Tony hawks in. Sorry, as Tony walks in. Hernan greets T with the Signore. There's another one who knows how to hang himself. Tony holds it together on account. There's a lady in the room. Asks to talk to AJ in the garage for a moment. As AJ gets up, we see his shirt reads, Undercover Genius. In the garage, T says, Tomorrow morning you go to this address. 7 a.m., ask for Mr. Caravallo. He's working construction now. AJ says this is bullshit. Tony, recalling how he told Melfi he wanted to knock this kid out, gathers himself. 
like Steph before a wide open corner three. Puts his hand on his shoulder firmly. Says, you keep what you earn. The pay is good. It's a union job. And T's not going to charge rent. Then he grabs him firmly by the back of the head. Pulls his hair. But not enough that it's threatening. I just want to see you do good. AJ says he's going to have to leave Tony's friend in the lurch when he goes back to school. Great turn of phrase for a flunky. Tony, calm. It's okay. He deals with stuff like that all the time. AJ tries again to get out of it. He'd just like to keep searching online. The camera movement is reminiscent of the scene when Tony confronted Zellman at his house about Arena. The menace. The looming. T says if he's not at the job site tomorrow, he's going to take away his car, then clothes, then room, then his mother's cooking. All the while, AJ is shrugging and smirking. Yeah, whatever. Daring Tony. Kind of like Artie does. AJ's face right there is one you want to break. Excellent sell. But T finds it someplace else. Backs up. Looks at the workbench. Maybe a tool. Uh Uh-oh. He finds a football helmet. Smashes the exterior window with it. Love how the camera shakes a little on Tony, but is static on AJ. T walks over to AJ. Maybe he's going to do a bottomed-out move like he did to Jackie Jr. But instead, a simple but serious. Don't put me to the test. Cut to Paris. A long, tree-lined path. Pigeons fluttering again. Third time this episode. Then, a woman walking. We immediately recognize her as Adriana. And Cassette, too. Maybe this was the French connection. Who fucking knows? Who am I, Gene Hackman now? She turns around and sees Carm. Look, I found Cassette. Then a cop. Your friend? Someone needs to tell her she's dead. More symmetry. A similar vision that Pussy was a rat came to Tony in a dream. Both dreams served a similar purpose. Ending their respective charades. Cut to Carm waking up. Turns on the light. More symmetry, as she did that at the top of the episode, too. Then cut to Patty asleep. Clock ticking. Phil next to her, awake. Staring at the ceiling like Beth Harmon in The Queen's Gambit. Only there were no chess pieces up in his room. Interesting juxtaposition, though. She's sleeping soundly, whereas he's distraught. In the same way... Kevin Durant spoke of his mother during his MVP speech, where he said, you the real MVP? Patty? She the real gangster. Cut to Paris again. Marriott exterior, right on the Champs-Élysées. They're checking out, heading back. Carm is still awestruck at the sights and sounds. Roe, instead of a glove this time, left behind some placemats. Toulouse-Lautrec ones. Which is funny because those don't feel like hard things to replace. One tour of duty through home goods would yield good options, I'd imagine. Carm walks over to a store next door. Gourlain, probably butchering it, a cosmetics outfit. 
But she's more enamored with the sculpture overhead than with the toners and masks inside. Has a moment with it. Then she turns around, sees the Eiffel Tower in the distance. The beacon on top of it is rotating. A direct callback to early this season in Costa Mesa. Despite their individual battles with existence, one literal and the other more abstract and emotional here, the beacon serves as a nice connective thread to show they both got through their respective things and they're stronger together because of it. Cut to Perry bringing in Carmela's bags. She's home. T's got a new tracksuit, blue with the white trim. Great look. Then cut to Ro coming home to her mother. Nice contrast of front door greets. Really effective. But T couldn't have fetched her from the airport? Had to have Perry do it? Then cut to Vito's kids reading about their dad in the paper. Someone who they would not be greeting at the front door anymore. And then the slander. Alleged capo slain. Couldn't even call him an outright capo. To top it all off, someone in the family from Brooklyn said that Vito and his wife had recently separated. The piece said he was openly gay, and both kids recognized their dad wasn't a spy. The fact that their lives are forever changed is addressed, but then that's it. Like, cars whizzing by. Their relationship with their dad is reduced to a column in a local paper that would haunt them for years. Cut to the Soprano residence, wee hours of the morning, snow on the roof and along the edges of the driveway. Great establishing shot. Again, is one more thing going to happen? There's a couple minutes left. Inside, AJ's layering up. Carm's doing laundry, too jet-lagged to sleep. Back to square one. Regularness of life, but content. Not burdened. Interesting shot to show her heading down the basement as AJ simultaneously heads out the front door. Doors opening, closing. Is there a surprise in store this penultimate episode? Now's the time. We see her loading laundry into the machine. Long beat. You think she's going to find something. A fingernail. Lipstick. But nothing. Finally, cut to the guy that shot Vito for the Thin Club ad. One final clever tieback to the season premiere. And proof positive that what we think is seldom the way things actually go. Chase, the ultimate teacher of life here. The photographer's reading the paper, recognizes Vito. Note the caption, if you look closely at the freeze frame, is repeated over and over. The music in the background is Home by Persephone's Bees. The camera tightens on the Thin Club ad as he pulls it closer. And we drown in the music as the camera fades to black. Like Carmela said, in the end, it just gets washed away. Vito. Fat Dom, the casualties before them, our problems, our worries. I think a useful exercise 
to push against everything washing away until it actually does is to really consider Melfi's question. What is it you want from your life? And make a real concerted push toward it. Even if you come up short, the residue of that effort, the art that results, the fruit of the work put forth, won't wash away. But instead, maybe it'll endure, last for posterity, like those Gallo-Roman baths. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next time.